Uh, guys, my name is Nick. Welcome to Mercy Hill. Uh, I got one guy who said hi to me. That was nice. Who was that? That was, that was a little unorthodox. I'm not used to getting a response. Thank you. Um, if I haven't met you, uh, I look forward to meeting you afterwards. Um, for now, we're going to get into God's Word. In particular, we'll be in um, Luke's Gospel. We are now in Chapter 7. If you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand and uh, we'll, we'll get one to you. Um, the New Testament works like this, where you have Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, and then Luke's. Uh, kind of different angles on the same, same story of Christ's life. We are in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. I'll pray, and then uh, we'll dive in. All right, here we go. It says this. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. And let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's God's word. Let's let's pray. I absolutely love this story. I so want to be like this centurion, Lord. We want to believe you for crazy things. We want to cause you to marvel <laughs> with the way that we believe you for crazy things. Trust you with all that we have. But I know that our weeks are often filled to the brim, especially here in the valley. And I know, God, that a lot of us probably come in tired, distracted, a lot of things on our minds, hearts. I think that's true even for me. We pray, God, together here this morning. Would you gather us around your word? Would you reveal to us your son? And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to be changed? 
Would you help us to repent of our unbelief, of our idolatry, of the ways we've wandered? Would you help us to embrace you fully with a faith that can handle any crisis? God, we we want to be a people, we want to be a church that cause you to marvel. So I'm asking, Lord, that you would do beyond what I could even ask here as we dive in. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So the title of today's sermon is How to Marvel the Marvelous One. I realize it's probably not exactly correct English, but essentially, how do we cause the marvelous one namely Jesus, to marvel. I think um, tucked away there in verse 9 really is the main point of this story. Where it says, he, Jesus, marveled at him, the centurion. We're meant to be a bit staggered, I think, by this. Because... Uh, when you read the New Testament, when you read the Gospels, it it's all over the place. People marveling at Jesus. That we're familiar with. That we get used to. He, after all, is God in the flesh. He is the marvelous one. If I were to give you just a few examples from Luke's Gospel of this, Luke 4.22, we've already seen it. Um, this is when Jesus preaches in the synagogue there in Nazareth. And, and then when he's done kind of giving his, his sermon or, or, or kind of quoting and then saying, today it's been fulfilled in your presence or whatever, uh, everyone looks at them. We read in verse 22 and says, uh, it says this, all spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They marveled at Jesus because of what he was saying and how he was teaching and the kind of authority he had. We get used to this. Luke 8, 25, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. You remember this, when the storm hits, right? And I think he's like sleeping, and one of the accounts says he's like on a pillow, just kind of chilling, laid back. And meanwhile, the disciples think, we're dying here. We're taking on water. The storm has taken us down. So they wake Jesus up. Don't you care that we're perishing? He just says a word. He just rebukes the the waves, rebukes the wind with a word from his mouth, and it all ceases. And then we read this in verse 25. The disciples were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then in Luke 24, 12, just to kind of fast forward, after the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, you remember the, uh, the women have come back to the tomb with kind of the, the spices and things they prepared for his body, only they find that the stone has been rolled away and there's no body in the tomb. So they run back to the apostles who are gathered, huddled, scared. Most of them laugh and think it's a joke. Peter's like, I'm going to see for myself. We read this about Peter there in verse 12. He rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Nobody is folded up burial garments. 
And he went home marveling at what had happened. I, I literally just gave you three of countless uh, uh, places in the Gospels where we are told people see what Jesus is up to and they marvel at him. They just go, no way, something is different about this man. We get used to that, but rare, rare on the pages of the Gospels is Jesus himself ever said to marvel. Not people marveling at him, but Jesus marveling at another. In fact, this story with the centurion here in Luke 7 is the only place in the Gospels, in the New Testament, where Jesus is said to marvel at another person, at least in a positive way. There's one other place, and I'm not able to cover it even though I wanted to, where he marvels at the unbelief of those in Nazareth. But here is the only place in Scripture where Jesus marvels in a positive way at a person and says, wow, that was amazing. What you just did, what you just said, whatever, that was amazing. Again, we are, I think, meant to be staggered by this. Uh, I think we're meant to kind of step back and go, wait a minute, wait, wait. How? How does a, a, a human being, a creature... A created being, amaze, marvel, cause the creator to marvel. How does that exchange work? I mean, when you think about who Jesus is, how does that happen? I mean, he's the alpha and the omega, right? I just read this and go through Revelation in my devotions. This is what he says. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the first and the last. I know the end from the beginning, I mean, he's God. How, how do you amaze, how do you cause God to marvel? Because I want to do it. <laughs> right? You want to do it. So this morning, as we try to answer this question and, and uncover how we too can cause the marvelous one to marvel... Uh, We're going to divide our text into two parts. You see it there on your handout. First, a moment of crisis, verses 1 through 5. And then second, a marvelous faith, verses 6 through 10. So first there, a moment of crisis in verses 1 through 5. These five verses kind of set the stage for verses 6 through 10. Which again, I'm saying, I think, house the main point in our text this morning. But it's this moment of crisis that the centurion is going through that kind of provides the opportunity for for him to uh, do something, display something that causes the marvelous one, Jesus, to marvel. So I want to do a little bit of background work here just to get us uh, to that second part. The first thing we need to point out is that Uh, This man who causes the son of God to marvel isn't even a Jew. I think that's part of it. I wanted to do a lot more of this. I can't. He's a centurion. Uh, He's a Roman soldier, part of the Roman army. Centurions were considered, you know, kind of the backbone of the Roman army. 
He was probably ethnically Roman, although not necessarily. Certainly, he was a Gentile. We know that from verse 9, where Jesus says, not even in Israel have I seen this kind of faith. In other words, this guy isn't in Israel. He's a Gentile. And therefore, he's quite a surprising individual to be honored as the only man in Scripture that Jesus marvels at in a positive way. That ought to strike us. I mean, because if, if, if we put ourselves in their shoes, here's, here's their sandals. However, you, I'm wearing sandals, so that works. Uh, here's here's uh, what they would be thinking. They would be expecting, hey, someone that's going to cause God to marvel, someone that's going to cause God to be pleased. Well, it's got to be a Jew. It's probably going to be scribe, Pharisee, some, some guy really steeped in the, in the law. Maybe we would expect it's going to be one of Jesus' disciples, one of those guys, you know, who will cause Jesus to marvel. That's not it. It's this Gentile, this guy outside the, the standard circle, the sphere that you would think this sort of honor would, would, would arise from. So here we have essentially a not, not so subtle foreshadowing of the direction uh, in which Jesus' ministry is, is going to head. Namely, that after his crucifixion and his resurrection, I mean, the doors to the kingdom are going to be flung open wide, right? And who's going to come streaming in? The Gentiles, the nations are going to come streaming in. We should note that a centurion... Uh, as a principal officer in the Roman army and kind of given away there, even in his name, when you think of century, um, they would be given more or less a hundred soldiers to uh, kind of uh, command over and lead. So this centurion would be both under uh, Rome, under uh, guys like Herod and Antipas or even other higher ranking officers. And yet he would also himself be over about uh, anywhere from 80 to 100 men. That's who this guy is. And that will come into play a little bit later when we see what this centurion says to Jesus. From my research, it seems actually that soldiers uh, in the Roman army were not allowed to marry. Um, at least while they were in service. Um, that's true of your standard soldier. It's especially true of the centurion. The reason why this uh, is important to note is because I think that starts to make sense of, of why the centurion so values his servant. In fact, I, if you, I didn't want to do it with you here, but in the Greek there's some hints that this centurion is, is kind of looking at his servant Almost as if a son, as a son to him. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have kids. He doesn't have a family. And so here is this servant who probably became dear, or even the text says was, was highly valued or precious, highly esteemed to him. It's almost like family this guy had become. And we read there in verse 2 that this servant of this centurion is sick and at the point of death. So he's freaking out like you would if your loved one or, or someone you cared deeply about was dying right in front of you. I'm sure Anne could tell us all about the fears and the difficulty of seeing that sort of thing and all the worries. 
But then in verse 3, we're told that this centurion heard about Jesus. And as I read that in my study, immediately I thought of Romans 10, 14, where Paul is, is uh, writing. Um, he says this, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So the centurion hears about Jesus in his moment of crisis. Faith is awakened uh, in who Jesus might be and might be what he might be able to do for him. And he calls on him, right? But I thought of Romans 10, 14, and I thought of the neighborhoods around our church and the neighborhoods around our home groups that I just kind of see as outposts of our church. And I, I thought of the neighborhoods around our individual homes, my home. And I, I thought, man, we are called in this place to be salt among the dying, the decaying, right? We're called to be light among the darkness. We're called to be ambassadors of the kingdom. We're called to be a royal priesthood where, you know, we don't walk around our neighborhood in the same way. We have a holy calling to intercede in some way between God and man as we call for them to come out of darkness and into his light through Jesus Christ. And I started thinking about Do my, do my neighbors know? Do the people around our church know? Have they heard? <laughs> so that when their time of crisis comes, they know Jesus is the answer. They know where to turn. They know who to call on. And I know that this is America. I know that. You know, most probably everyone's heard of Jesus or, you know, they probably have Christian friends or something. But it just occurred to me, maybe, maybe they need to hear it from you. Maybe they need to see it at work in your life. So the centurion sees, you know, probably these people who are amazed at what Jesus is doing. That's why word is spreading throughout Galilee and Judea about Christ. Because people are watching what's happening and they're going, no way. And that sort of excitement spreads to the centurion. He sees that and goes, maybe there's hope for my servant. He hears about Jesus and he calls, calls on him. He sends forth this call through um, uh, the elders of the Jews. Uh, we're not quite sure why. Some of it's probably humility, as we'll see. He doesn't even think he's worthy to come to Jesus. Some of it might be he's, he's tied up caring for his servant. But one way or another, he, he sends this call to Jesus through these elders of the Jews. And they are actually, amazingly, happy to plead on his behalf earnestly. We're told. Um, and they say to Jesus, listen, this man is worthy to have you do for him. Do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So you see that this centurion has some sort of sympathy for the Jewish nation. He's, he's used a lot of his finances to help fund some of their religious things like the synagogue there in Galilee. And so they say, man, he's helped us. Let's help him. He deserves our help, Jesus, can you do this? Now, 
verses 6 through 10 in a marvelous faith. I've already um, said that I think the central concern in all of this text really is found there in verse 9, that Jesus marveled at this centurion, at this man. Most of the time in Jesus' miracles, the point has to do with something about Jesus <laughs> and the authority that's being displayed or the miracle itself or whatever. But what, what, what we see in our text is that <laughs> there's something in this centurion that should draw our attention. Something about this, this man here that we, uh, we need to learn from. And it's now that we are approaching the answer to the question we asked back at the beginning. Namely, how or why or what causes the marvelous one to marvel? How does the one who can still the waves with a word from his mouth get amazed by me or by you? Jesus lays it out quite plainly for us there in verse 9 at the end. When he turns to the crowd and he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Faith. It's the centurion's faith that causes Jesus to marvel. Um, I'm not going to obviously let us stop there because I think there's a lot to this. And I want to unfold it for you. Really, it's where we're going to spend majority of our time now is what about this faith what characterizes this kind of marvelous faith this faith that even the marvelous one marvels at i want to know what that's like i want to know what characterizes that and i want to see god you do it in my own heart in my own life What we see, it seems, from this text is that a marvelous faith has two key characteristics. Namely, first, it is self-humbling. And second, it is Christ-exalting. It starts to see self clearly. Like, I'm low. I'm nothing. I can't do this. And it starts to see Jesus clearly. You're high. You're strong. You're mighty. You're everything. You can do it. Take those one at a time. First, a marvelous faith is self-humbling. Self-humbling. Jesus was um, persuaded by the elders to help. And in verse 6, we read that he's traveling with them towards the centurion's house. Okay. But something curious happens at this point. And I kind of had to sit back and go, wait, how, how does this work? Because what you essentially have is, is the centurion, though he initially sent the elders to ask Jesus to come and help. Now it seems as having second thoughts, even about that request. He, he, he's starting, I, I suppose, to get this growing uh, awareness of his own inadequacy, of his own uh, unworthiness to have this man of God come anywhere near him. <laughs> like, w- wait, that was a little bold, <laughs> asking you to come. Perhaps, uh, perhaps I should uh, stop you before it's too late. And so what we see is he actually sends out a second group now. 
He dispatches a second group, a group of his own friends there uh, at the second part of uh, verse 6 and 7. And, and, and we see that they, he sends them to bring this message uh, for him to Jesus. And this is what he wants him to say. Let me just read the first part of it. Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume, or in the Greek there, I did not count myself worthy to come to you. Did you hear that? Lord, I didn't come to you, and I don't want you to come to me. Why, centurion? Because I'm not worthy of having you come into my presence, of being in your presence. And it's so crazy and interesting because with this statement, he effectively undoes the very basis of, of the plea uh, that, that, that the elders uh, give. When they are uh, talking to Jesus back in verse 4, what's the basis that they give to him for why this man deserves help? Well, he's done great things, and they even say it. He is worthy to have you do this for him. That's the lens that they see the world through. Well, he did good, so we should do good for him. He's worthy of it, Jesus. Help him. Well, this centurion effectively undoes that entire basis here in verses 6 and 7 when he says, no, no, no. I'm not worthy. Let's get this straight. Let's get one thing straight. I am not worthy to have you even come into my house i'm getting a sense of who you are i'm getting a clearer sense of who i am you stay right where you're at (laughs) the centurion himself is not nearly as impressed with who he is or what he's accomplished instead he's impressed it seems with jesus what he's able So he begins his message to Jesus through these friends with self-humbling, by lowering himself. And I want to ask, I wonder when's the last time that we felt unworthy to be in God's presence? It's not a bad thing. It's bad if we sit there, we think, I'm unworthy, until we walk away. But it's not a bad thing to come into the gathering of the saints or even to open up your Bible in the morning or to pray to him while you're taking a shower or whatever you're doing and go, man, I don't deserve this sort of relationship with you. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm not worthy to have you speak to me through the scriptures and change me and care for me. I, I don't deserve this. When's the last time we felt that way? Oftentimes it's the opposite, right? We, we grumble or we complain about ways that God's not coming to us. And there's some, you know, Psalms and other places in the prophets and scriptures where, yes, we get a sense we want to pray and say, God, where are you? And that, that stuff is okay to engage him with that. But never losing a sense of the fact that we don't deserve his help, period. We're not worthy to be in his presence. Sinners belong in the hands of an angry God. 
not in the hands of a loving father who cares for them, protects them, promises to guide them to glory. How did that happen? We don't want to lose our sense of awe. In other words, this man had it. I don't belong here. How could I have even been so bold as to ask you to come to me? Uh, Second thoughts. Just stay there. Stay there. He begins with self-humbling, but again, it doesn't stay there. Therefore, Jesus, just go on your way. Little old me doesn't want anything to do with you. You know, just kind of Eeyore walking back into his little... Sorry, I have little kids. That's what I think of naturally, I guess. That's not where it stays. Yes, he's not impressed with himself any longer. But as I said before, he's impressed with Christ. So yes, he gets a sense of his own unworthiness. But he has an even stronger sense of Christ's willingness and capacity to help. So it's not just, I'll just go my way. It's, I'm not worthy, but I see you still are great and you still are good and you want to help. So he presses in with more that he wants to say. And he moves from humbling himself to exalting Christ. This is the second part of verses 7 and into verse 8. He goes on. Say the word and let my servant be healed. So don't just stay where you're at because I'm unworthy. Stay where you're at because you don't need to come to heal. That's how great you are. You just say the word and it will happen. Yards or miles or however far away. Say the word and let my servant be healed for. And here he gives his understanding now of of why this is the case. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. I wonder if you caught what he just said. This is why we preach, by the way. This is why we study the Bible, by the way. Oftentimes, things just kind of run right through our ears, and we we don't grab a hold of it. (laughs) I want to stop. I, I exist to stop you (laughs) in your reading and go, did you hear that? Did you hear what he just said? This centurion draws a stunning analogy here between his experience as a centurion and, and, and and what he understands uh, Jesus has experienced to be as a, a messenger or instrument or prophet of God. To be clear, the centurion probably doesn't have the full categories we do, that this is the son of God or that this is the Messiah. He just knows God is at work in this man in a crazy way. I mean, all the disciples are slowly figuring out who Jesus is fully, just to be clear. But he, he sees some analogy in what Jesus is able to do and what, he, what he, he does as a centurion. And he starts to make this comparison. So as a centurion, he says, I know. I, I uh, am a man under authority. I'm under Rome, like I said, under, under Herod and under Caesar, right? But I also am a man who has authority over things because of that. And I have soldiers and servants and I tell them to do something and it's done. 
And then he says, that's why I know. You can just say the word from a mile away. And my servant will be healed. Because I know you are a man or son of God under the authority of your father, Yahweh. I know that you have been placed under and yet you also have been placed over. Not just a few hundred men, but over all that your father created, over the universe, unseen and and seen world. You just say a word and things change. The centurion knows that Jesus has such authority over all things that all he must do is speak a word and death itself will release its grip. And sickness will abandon ship. Straying molecules will come back into line. And his servant will be healed. Just a word. Just command. I'm a man of rank. I know how this works. You just say it and it's done. That's crazy. That is crazy. It's the sort of thing that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he writes of Jesus. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So the centurion knows. Speak a word and the universe is going to obey. And death will flee. Like an unwanted visitor. It's in these words now seen in full that Jesus turns and, and, and marvels. It's in these words that Jesus sees this man's faith. Both uh, self-humbling. I'm not worthy. And both Christ and Christ exalting. Just say the word. He sees this man's faith and it's this that causes Jesus to marvel. We've got to stop here, I think, and consider for a moment the wonder of all that we just saw there. And how counterintuitive, how counter to our, our, our natural inclinations this, this sort of thing is. If I were, I wonder, before this sermon, before we read this text, uh, before we began here this morning, if I were to start by saying, what, what do you think would cause in you, the Son of God, Jesus, to marvel at you? What do you think would cause the Son of God to marvel at you? My sense, although I hope Maybe I'm doing my job here now for two years. Maybe your answer would be right where we just went. That would be wonderful. My sense is a lot of times what we think is kind of how we operate in the world. And that is, well, I'd have to do something pretty marvelous. I mean, that, that defines our culture and the way that we as human beings work, right? We marvel at the people who've done something marvelous. That's why we like, you know, whoever it is, Steph Curry or, you know, Beyonce or whatever. People who have done things that we can't. Ooh. We'll marvel at them. So therefore, how do we get God to marvel at us? Well, we 
must be that we need to do something. We need to accomplish something big. So maybe if I sell all my stuff like those missionaries of old and I go to the 1040 window and lay my life down, maybe then he'll marvel marvel at me. I mean, that might raise some eyebrows in heaven. Or maybe if I finally kick that sin that's been dogging me for 10 years, then God will be pleased with me. He'll say, man, you did it. There'll be some amazement there. Or maybe um, (laughs) if we quit being such a coward and start evangelizing my neighbors, right? Then God would be pleased with me. Then God would marvel at who I am and what I'm doing. But as it is, I'm just an ordinary Christian, up and down, hot and cold, nothing to marvel at here, right? But we get it all backwards, We get it all backwards. Jesus doesn't marvel at us. What this text teaches us, he doesn't marvel at us for what we accomplish. He marvels at us when we finally give up on what we can accomplish and embrace what he is able to accomplish. Do you see that? When we stop trying to impress him and actually start being impressed by him. That causes Jesus to step back and go, wow, now there's something you don't see every day among fallen man. Everyone who will be their own God and thinks they're self-sustaining and amazing and all that. And everybody look in at me to see someone say, I I can't do this, but you can. That's amazing. That's marvelous. Perhaps a memorable way to sum all this up would be like this. Jesus marvels at those who marvel at him. Not those who do something marvelous in their own strength, but those who turn to him and marvel at who he is. You have so much authority. You just say the word and everything shifts. That's amazing. And lest we think that this is an anomaly here in our text, this is actually the consistent witness of Scripture. Let me show you this. Just a few places. Consider Psalm 147, uh, verses 10 through 11. His delight, God's delight, is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those who hope in his steadfast love. Not in the the strength of the horse or the legs of a man. God's not impressed. But he is impressed by the person who's impressed by him. Who fears him and hopes in him and knows him to be great. That's what causes God to be pleased. God to marvel. Or Isaiah 66, 2. You've got to love this text. This is the one, God says, to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Not the one who accomplishes great things, but the one who's trembling because he knows God is great. And his word is almighty and powerful. See that? That's the one that God's eyes are upon going, no way something is happening there. 
Or perhaps my favorite, and this is the last example I'll give you. In Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, there's a scene that's very similar to the one in our text in Luke 10. This time, it's a Canaanite woman, okay? And so she's a Gentile, just like this centurion. And she has this daughter who is demon-possessed. And she's crying out. She's heard about Jesus. She knows it can help. She's calling out, help, please. My daughter is being oppressed. The disciples are annoyed by this lady. They're like, Jesus, please shut her up. She's getting in the way of our mission to the Jews or whatever. Tell this Canaanite girl to go away. But Jesus has other plans. He's going to test her faith. But he knows where he's going with this. We've got to hear this. He turns to her and everything in us and immediately kind of goes, oh, whoa, Jesus, that probably wasn't the nicest thing to say. But he turns to her and he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Did you hear that? Because you're a Gentile. You're not a part of the covenant people, right? You're low. You're nothing. Verse 27, she said, yes, Lord. Now, how could you say that to me? Do you know what? No, none of that. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. In other words, I know I'm not worthy to eat with you, to get grace from you and help from you. But I know you are gracious and sovereign. I'm not letting go. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Self-humbling, Christ-exalting faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Consistent testimony of Scripture. Jesus doesn't marvel at the marvelous. He marvels at those who marvel at him. At those who are sick of relying on themselves and turning in on themselves and finally are ready for help from the outside and from the right source from God. That to Jesus is marvelous. So getting personal for a moment, how are we doing with this? When our own moments of crisis strike, how do we respond? Uh, it seems to me, again, we, we get backwards. We get this whole thing kind of backwards. We, uh, when things kind of fall down around us or our you know, situations get hard, what we tend to do is bend inwards in self-reliance. We start to get bigger, and God, actually, the one we need, starts to get smaller. We start to look and, and struggle, and how do I get out of this? How do I solve this? What can I do? Where can I, where can I go? What should I say? And we have all these emotional responses that, that also betray this sort of thing happening, where you know, it's different for every one of us, but there, sometimes we'll get, we, you know, we, we, we get angry and aggressive. We're going to take care of this ourselves. Or sometimes we go to the opposite extreme. We, we get depressed or hopeless or I'm never going to be able to figure it out. But one way or another, 
I think at bottom, the same thing is happening. We're getting bigger in these times of crisis, and God is all but shrinking from view. Like, where is he? I don't know. That's why I'm so anxious. It's on me. I'm going to figure it out. Our moments of crisis don't have to be near-death experiences. (laughs) Truly, I think we face crises of faith every day. In the ordinary stuff of life, I'll just give you a quick example from my own experience. Um, So I'm a pastor. You might wonder what I do all week. You probably think that I uh, sit in a couch and I I read theology books, pray and kind of levitate to cloud nine with the Lord. That's not what it looks like. (laughs) Pastor of a small church is actually, it's complex. Uh, There's a lot of different tasks I'm involved in, whether it's administrative stuff to counseling, discipling, raising up leaders, overseeing leaders, event planning, website, you know, not to mention preaching and and, uh, bringing God's word here. So I mention all that uh, to say there are times where I get tired. The young family, young pastor, get tired. I love it. I love the work God's called me to. I feel so privileged to be able to do it. I get tired. Times where I tell Megan, man, I just wish, I wish I could go and sit under someone else's preaching. I'm tired of being the guy talking everywhere I go, you know. I don't know. I'm not this endless supply of vision and energy and zeal for God. I feel empty sometimes. I feel insufficient. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that when Thursday rolls around and it's time for me to prepare another sermon and I feel dead, tired, insufficient in myself? What do you do? Here's what unfortunately happens a lot. Buck up, man. Come on. Don't be a baby. Be a man. Pull yourself up. You can do this. Work harder. Get it together. Figure it out. Come up with a different way to rearrange your schedule so you can handle all that's on your plate. Let's make this thing happen, Nick. You can do it. Anxiety kind of reigns. And, and I'll go, you know, a day I'll realize, oh, I didn't even eat today or whatever. I'm just working. What are you doing? I don't want to be doing that. Getting bigger while the one who can help is getting smaller and shrinking from my view. No way. I want to do what the centurion does here. I want to do what Paul the Apostle does when he's talking about his ministry. Consider this with me. In 2 Corinthians 2.16, Paul cries out, Who is sufficient for these things? He's talking about gospel ministry. Who is sufficient? The implication in in that text is no one. No one has the strength to do this in themselves. No one is worthy to bring the gospel to people and represent Christ to people. No one. But he doesn't stop with humbling himself. Paul goes on later in chapter 3 verses 5 through 6 to exalt Christ who makes him sufficient. Says this. We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers. Turning away from myself. Turning towards the one who is. I can't. You can. 
You are sufficient. That's the kind of interaction that causes Jesus to marvel. Not, man, can I put it together and get another good sermon that's going to wow? No, Jesus is going, twiddling his thumbs. That was boring. That was just you. But he's riveted when he sees me or you turning from self-reliance and say, you just say a word and the text will unfold. You just say a word and the church can grow. You just say a word and this difficult counseling situation can work out. And I know each one of us, I just give you that, not because I want to focus on myself, because show you how this sort of stuff gains traction in the everyday. I know you have your own crises of faith, whether you're a mom, you're dealing with mommy guilt, feeling like everything you do or or have done is wrong. I can't do this. You're insufficient, right? You feel that? Or maybe it's your work and and you're, you're just stressed. You're even sitting here today thinking about Monday that's coming. I don't want to go. (laughs) I can't do this. Let's as a church. Embrace it. We're worms. We're dogs. We can't do it. Not just ministry stuff, but just even walking through ordinary life stuff with, with the peace of God and the power. of We can't do that. He can. What a faith that marvels the Son of God. Now, our text ends, and this is where we'll end as well, with a note of triumph. There in verse 10 says this, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. He's healed. (laughs) Now, always in Christ's healings, we are given a portrait of what is coming for his people, what he is going to do for his people on the last day. Not just in a temporary fashion, healing us for a few years until we die, but healing us ultimately, eternally. We know he's going to do this ultimately through his life, death, and resurrection. We know that sickness and death are not natural, that they are intruders into uh, this created world. They don't belong here. No matter what the scientists say about nature or about death or sickness or whatever it is, it doesn't belong here. And in the deepest part of your being, you know it. That we let this intruder in. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? Genesis 2.17. Death came in as a consequence, as a curse. Upon our stiff arming of God. And Christ has come to reverse this. And he gives us these sorts of portraits. I'm reversing the curse. I'm reversing sickness. I'm reversing death. I say a word. And this thing turns around for your servant. And the portrait in our text points us to what he's going to accomplish on the cross, where he takes the curse on himself and he rises in conquest over it. That's why Peter, recalling Isaiah 53, would kind of merge the two ideas together, the healing and the, the gospel ministry of the cross. He says this, excuse me, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins 
in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And here it is. By his wounds, you have been healed. Healing is going to come to us ultimately through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his spirit poured out upon us. I don't know. This is the tricky part about the overlap of the ages in which we live. I don't know whether God will heal you now. I don't know. Or show up in your circumstances, whatever they are, and fix them in whatever way you're asking him or trusting him to do. I don't know. Certainly he is able. And certainly we will plead and ask. And certainly he will bring aid in one way or another. But whether he will fix it to your liking right now, immediately, I don't know. But what the rest of the gospel tells us and the epistles and the New Testament, what what we know is that whether he fixes your crises now, he most certainly will fix them on the last day with a word. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. With a cry of command. A man of rank. And the dead in Christ. Will rise. Imperishable. Forever. First Thessalonians 4.16. So, so when. Our moments of crisis come. Guys. Man. Let's not bend inward. Let's not get bigger. Let's go out. Let's get God in the place where he truly is on the throne. Let's lower ourselves and exalt him and embrace him fully by faith, fastening our hope on him in life and through death. Because in that, and only in that, will we cause the son of God, the marvelous one, to marvel. Let's pray. God, we we want to be like this centurion. And we know we can only be that way. The work of your spirit in through our hearts. Because ultimately that faith that he displays there is really the faith that you live out in your time on this earth. Trusting your father, crying out to your father, knowing that whatever he decides is right and that in the end he will vindicate, he will fix, he will heal, he will raise you. Jesus, we need your spirit at work in our lives to keep us faithful through the mundane and the big trials, crises in our lives. We ask you for help, for your glory. In namesake, we pray. Amen.